0: Welcome to the Talking Gardens podcast with me, Stephanie Mahan, editor of Gardens Illustrated. My guest this episode is landscape architect and garden designer, Marion Boswell, advocate of planet-friendly gardening and author of the book, Sustainable Garden. So Marion, if you had to create your fantasy garden, your dream space from absolutely anything in the world, what would be the first thing that you would choose to include?
1: Well, I think the first thing would have to be Love so, I am very lucky to create beautiful gardens, but they they really have to be beautiful in more than one dimension and in in terms of what they do and what they do for people and as well as for the land. And when I think of my uh, archetypes for gardens, I I think of my childhood and I think of gardening with my grandmother, who, a bit like me, but I always used to say without the wrinkles, but now I have the wrinkles too. (laughs) And she was so patient and so loving. And I remember waking up in the night once when I'd been camping in the garden with my sister and she was sitting there on a chair waiting for us, just looking after us. So that feeling of love and my Grant Doris, great-aunt Doris, who used to, we used to go along the hedgerows and pick old man's beers in Traveller's Joy, Clematis Vitalba and oaks and little bits of thorn to make dollies out of. So just that memory of being cared for and loved. And when I'm trying to create a garden, I'm always trying to bring that in and make sure that the people I'm creating it for are, are, feel nurtured as well. And I often ask them about their childhood so that we can... Really understand what really creates joy because at the end of it, it's not the trampoline or the swimming pool or the pergola that's actually going to make you happy, is it? It's it's what else is in the garden. Yeah, the, there is an, a lot of that
0: when I ask people about, you know, their first gardening memory or how they got into gardening and an awful lot of people have that connection, especially to their grandparents, grandparents and gardens and, you know, that time spent in their sort of uh, the wonder of nature, just digging around in the dirt or looking back later in life at you know how beautiful their grandparents' gardens or allotments were, it seems to be a real touchstone for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I think it's that timelessness as well, isn't it? Because grandparents are patient in the way that parents don't have time to be. <laughs> yeah, um, And not having that sort of purpose, I think one of the things we learn... As gardens is the process is all that counts. So actually creating something. We, you never get to the end of a garden, do you? It's never done. So it's really enjoying the journey. Yeah. And and do the rest of your family garden as well? My children have gardened. <laughs> and my husband enjoys walking around in the garden. But my father used to ring me up as sort of a language of love, if you like, and ask me about things in the garden he has a much smaller plot now, but he will still ask me about what to do with geraniums. or And it's not really the garden that he's talking about. It's just that open line of communication, really, that feeling of, of a bond of something that's really special, really special that runs throughout all of us. Sort of something to talk about. Well, not talking about anything, but just the talking. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a bit like when I think when we swap, it's a bit like poetry, when we swap names of plants with people then it's you're know, just making all those connections, aren't you? If you're like telling each other about which roses you've got, or all those, yeah. So it's a language of connection. I love that you said your grant, your great <laughs> yes, <is> aunt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's fantastic. So, right, so your fantasy garden will definitely have a lot of love in it. We'll make sure of that. What else do you think you would like to include in your dream garden?
1: Well, I would like to include a rabbit hole, uh, a different sort of rabbit. People who are listening would think, what rabbits? But it would be like an Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole because I'd like the visitors to my garden to have to be given like an avatar suit, perhaps we could say to use it technology, so that you could understand the garden at the scale of a butterfly or a bird or an ant, because we're so much bigger than all of the creatures that we create our gardens for and i just wonder what it's like to be them and i'm often you often see pictures on my instagram of me going really close up to moths and butterflies and, and how quiet do you have to be until you can understand what a moth or a butterfly is saying to us and we should really be listening to them and finding out how we should be coexisting so i think it would be wonderful to be able to experience that really really close up because what do we look like to them and we, we must be enormous just blobs really and they have so much finery you think the mayfly who has three tails and only lasts for sort of a couple of hours or even sometimes only five minutes maximum a couple of days in that state they're so dressed up and we barely see some of the moths and they're so beautiful
0: it's a really interesting idea isn't it do you ever take account of that in your work as a designer where you're like a bird's eye view or a bug's eye view you know generally of like this even the spatial arrangement of a garden or what you're including to like see it from really down low and see it
1: from up high well everything we plant is for pollinators i mean i've don't really put anything in unless it has a f- medicinal use or for the insects or for the earth. And we and will maybe we can talk about earth a bit in a, a while, but. Yes. I mean, I loathe drones, but they're really useful in order to see things from high. I mean, Google Earth, wasn't that a revelation? And apparently, the heart response of all earthlings the first time that we had the man on the moon who took pictures from space, and we sort of saw this lump of earth and realized this was our home. And I think a lot of people do feel that very sort of physical and emotional response to little old earth seen from above and i think it's the same with gardens and sometimes with my team we do a meditation at the beginning of a, when we first meet a piece of land and that involves also taking a much broader view and sort of taking our minds away and high and then coming right back down to the earth and thinking of all of the creatures in and under the earth and who are we designing for it's an interesting
0: approach. So you when you go and do a site visit, you know, for a, a landscape or a garden that you're about to make, it sounds like what you're taking into account is a lot broader than possibly what other designers might do. What sort of things do you consider? Well, I don't know what other designers do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the sense of place, and then there's possibly, maybe you want to get a deeper understanding. It yes, sounds yes. Well, like.
1: and I'm very interested in land energy, so we would be very in- interested in being in tune with what's happened before, historically, and that's physically, historically, and emotionally, historically. So, what's happened to this land through the, through the time? What memory does it carry with it? Because we know that water carries memory, and land carries memory, and How can that help the people that live there now or or how may it hinder them? And so we would want to be able to understand how we can really work with the land as well as uh, with the physical and two-dimensional aspect of the land. So yes, I guess we take our shoes off, we ground, we chat to the trees, the birds, yeah, all that kind of
0: stuff. I'm interested and I'm sure anyone listening is interested. When you say water has a memory,
1: what do you mean? Ah, so there's wonderful book by Masura Emoto. He went into the shape of water. And if you look at all the water crystals... Um, and how water's formed it will form differently depending on how it's treated but it also yes in terms of the shapes of the um, crystals and so on so it definitely has a memory as to what's happened to it but it also has a physical memory and so we're the guardians of the water that falls in our garden so when it leaves we have a choice whether it's cleaner or if it's full of hormones and chemicals and diesel fuel and all the rest of it so it, it Yes water is, is has all of our memories in, in imprinted in it. And what do you do if you find that you have a site where the water ha- is polluted or contaminated? I mean what can you Well on a physical level you can do a few things. So we're working with some floodplain restoration uh, at the moment and re-wiggling rivers and that's really exciting. Re-wiggling. Re-wiggling yes is, <laughs> nice, isn't it? It's a bit like the wiggled river of the past designers Capability Brown he was quite into his wiggles. But we have tended to take our rivers and make them too fast and too incised and it was really for the Industrial Revolution. We were trying to get our rivers as quickly as possible to industrial sites to feed them with water mills and that sort of thing and then they've been used as drains so to get it was actually somebody quoted who said the purpose of rivers is to get water to the sea as quickly as possible but it's really not. (laughs) The purpose of of rivers is to create a whole ecosystem so by re-wiggling the river you're slowing the water down and allowing it to be filtered, but also to sit in the soil and to sit in the land. That's really exciting work because the best carbon capture is in wet soil. So we know the peatlands, but also in a wetland. A wetland is an amazing place for holding carbon, but also for creating a whole ecosystem. So yes, a lot of the work we do is trying to restore that kind of ecosystem and to go from very incised, polluted rivers to... whole wetlands that can have a whole host of people and creatures living there.
0: I'm going to drive you on a bit because I believe one of your picks for your dream garden is going to be water. So let's segue nicely into that. In what form would that water in your fantasy garden take?
1: Well, I think it would be a full ecosystem. So I think so, as I say, we're working with the floodplains and, and slowing the flow. I love wild swimming. So, my dream garden wouldn't need to have a lake. <laughs> um, it's just a dream garden, so we can go big. I would love to wake up at dawn and to swim and then also if possible to have an area of wet woodland which would have beavers in it because they are the best ecosystem engineers we're so lucky as i'm sure you know that after 400 years of having driven them to being extinct we now have them back in the uk and they're doing an incredible job when you just in we were talking about shots from the air when you see how they heal the land and the work that they've done to hold water and areas which are brown all the way around and then beautifully green for for beavers so just amazing and the water voles that come with them and yes the willow warblers, yes we're just so once, once you've got them then everything follows and I work with a beautiful place called 42 Acres down in Somerset very lucky to go and visit there and swim there but the whole ecosystem goes from above ground right to below ground and so the trees, the creatures that live there but also the water and the soil so that my dream garden would have a fully biocomplete ecosystem. Including beavers? Including beavers, please. I believe you saw some for yourself recently. Yes, so I've seen them quite a few times, actually. I've been very lucky. But I was able to get very close to a beaver, which didn't mind me being there at all. And it was wonderful. So, yes, I was joking that uh, some people say that uh, some women of a certain age can be invisible. And I certainly will myself to being invisible when I'm trying to see beavers or any other shy creatures. So I stood terribly still. At sort of half past four or five in the morning, and this beaver just came to me. And once it happened twice, once they just came and checked me out and thought I was all right and went away. And you know, if they don't like you, because they do this big kind of tail splash, which is a bit of a warning. But this second one just came out and munched a piece of willow right next to me. So that was just Christmas and birthday and anniversary and everything all wrapped up in once. It was the best moment ever. Yeah, we do have to
0: tackle this a little bit. There, There's obviously a lot of talk about rewilding at the moment, including beavers, and not everyone is as big a fan of them as you. What would you say to people who think it's a terrible idea to reintroduce beavers back into
1: the UK and have them frolicking around the landscape? Oh, I'd say lots, but it would be a whole conversation. And it needs to be a conversation because people are afraid. People are afraid of what they don't know. And farmers... You know, they don't have a, an easy time. They have the um, the government and the weather as two vagaries to, to worry about. And, and beavers can just seem like another pain. But I went on a very interesting course, beaver management course in Bavaria. And there they have a brilliant way of coexisting with beavers and other ecosystems engineers and i think that that's the way to go that we really need to understand just as in africa and india they're learning to coexist with elephants i mean all of these creatures that we have in the past got out of the way for our own convenience we're now realizing that we can't exist without them so that we we need to work together
0: so Marion, so far you've told me that your dream garden would be filled with love and at the entrance you would be able to go down the rabbit hole, you would put on an avatar suit that, so that you could experience it from the point of view of a little bug or a bird, uh, all of these different sort of perspectives and also that it would have somewhere to be wild swimming and a full ecosystem linked to water. What else do you think you would like to include in your dream garden?
1: Well, as well as the uh, scale dimension, I'd like my dream garden to have a slow-mo and a fast-mo kind of dimension, if you think of the kind of apps on on your phone. And you know the Babadion quotation of 1968, that we only love what we understand and we only understand what we've been taught. And I think if we could slow down and understand the land as, say, the oak trees do, then we would have a completely different perspective on our own short and sometimes what we might say almost insignificant time that we're able to spend on earth. Even as a human race, we haven't been here for that long. But oaks have lived and lived for hundreds of years and we know that whilst they look to us like they're standing completely still, that they can communicate underground really quickly. First of all, they take down all those sugars and they feed all of the soil microbes, with the sugars through their root system and tell them what to fetch that they need, like a plant does, like any plant does. But also they communicate to other trees if there's like a forest fire and they all suddenly will be able to drop their leaves or even apparently the smell inside a forest will ch- will change from the chemicals given off if a chainsaw is is heard. So these trees are able to communicate quickly to one another and yet to us they seem like they're not moving at all. So if we could understand from their perspective the time. I think that would be hugely enhancing for our understanding and our ability to take care of of them as well as for ourselves. And then I'd also like to be able to speed up to see the garden as a dragonfly. So I don't know if you've ever tried to capture a dragonfly when they're hunting on it by a camera, but it's totally difficult. (laughs) They're zipping all over the place. Or a mayfly who turns out in in so much finery and, and doesn't even have a mouth because they're not going to eat in the very short time that they're alive. So how could we understand their perspective as well as ours? And I think that time dimension as well as the scale would really help us to understand how to look after each other. It reminds me of a Terry Pratchett
0: book, uh, where there's a whole section dedicated to the Mayfly experiences, (laughs) something at the very beginning. Um, Is there? Yes, I'm trying to remember the name of it, I think. Uh It's, uh, It's to do with Death Takes a Holiday, so nothing happens as it should. It's called Reaper Man. There's also a section on what time is like for old pine trees. And
1: Lilline Paul's amazing book, Bees, again, when she's imagined what it's like to be inside a a beehive, that's extraordinary. Doesn't make me want to be a bee. (laughs) But yes. You
0: mentioned about how the oaks communicate, you know, through the forest. So I believe that's called the wood wide web. Isn't that what it's been dubbed? Yes. Yeah. uh, It's really fascinating, isn't it? I think people don't always appreciate, like you say, trees are just sort of there. Yeah, And they're so still and they don't seem to change that much apart from dropping their leaves. But actually there is that whole system underground and, and it's a whole interconnected web with a whole load of other things, all the, you know, the mycorrhizal and, and everything else. How do you think that translates into gardens? Do you think the same sort of system is happening underground
1: there as well? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So one of the things which I'm fascinated with is soil, and you. one of the things you asked, which I'd have and I said compost bins, so if, if I can just put those together, because we are just beginning to understand as, as a um, human race and the science is sort of catching up with some of the gut knowledge that soil has the answer to so many of our current issues. And I'm absolutely obsessed with soil. So I did the Elaine Ingham's training and I'm about to do the Nicole Master's deep dive. She wrote for the love of soil, which I would really recommend to any anyone. It's it's written for farmers, but actually the amount of crossover between regenerative design in the farm and in, the, in gardens is, is huge. So under our own gardens, the plants are putting out exudates, so there's sugars, and sometimes they'll put out like 40% of, their, of the sugars they get from photosynthesis. They'll give it away to the microbes underground. And it's a bit like a pizza delivery because they'll say to the microbes, by microbes, sorry, for, for listeners, I mean the tiny creatures in the soil from the very smallest viruses and bacteria, fungi, protozoa, amoeba, nematodes up to uh, microarthropods, macroarthropods, and then worms. So we think of worms, but actually there's loads that's much, much smaller. And if you take one tiny drop of soil and look at it through a microscope you'll be there for hours (laughs) it's amazing you watch it and you'll you've absolutely fallen in love they have these little water bears and rotifers and stuff and pacman type things dashing around eating each other it's it's crazy down there I tell you have you read um, Merlin Sheldrake's book Entangled Life it's just extraordinary how much life there is going on under the soil. And so we need to look after our soil. So in terms of what what does that mean for gardeners, it means not poisoning it. And by poisons, I include fertilizers which are made of salt. So a lot of our fertilizers are salt-based and salts will kill all those little microbes. So not poisoning it with pesticides and fertilizers, making compost so that we're feeding all of those creatures and creating the whole web of soil food web so everything's in there that then feed your plants and then your plants feed the soil back So, it's and mulching of course and making sure it's not bare. So yes, it's huge and I could go on. <laughs> yeah. Do you have enviable compost bins at home? I have very enviable compost <laughs> and I go out and measure the temperature of them and turn them and love them. Yes, I do. What's the secret? Everybody wants to know the recipe for compost, the secret to great compost making. Is it just time I've been told? <laughs> no, you can make good compost in 15 days. So, oh right. Oh, so, God it's fantastic. So the secret is, and this is Elaine Ingham's recipe, so um, give her due credit for the Soil Food Web, but it's 60% brown, 30% green, and 10% what she calls party food, uh, which is high nitrogen, so chicken poo, or phacelia, or alfalfa, or anything high nitrogen. And the secret is to make sure that it always has air, so you could put tubes with holes to get the air in, so all parts need to be aerobic and to measure the temperature and if it gets too hot then you turn it i'm trying to be very brief i mean i'm happy to give notes or something but <laughs> it's a really important thing but then you turn it you turn the to make sure the middle goes to the top and the top goes to the to the middle and the bottom to the top so you're making sure that you always have a hot middle for 3 days and that kills off the pathogen and the weed seeds so you can have fast biocomplete compost without it going anaerobic. And the anaerobic you don't want because then you get the anaerobic creatures which are bad for your plants. So, yes, so compost is yeah, one of my favourite subjects. Thank you
0: for letting me talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fifteen days, though. People are, you know, they shouldn't assume that that's going to be lovely crumbly brown, perfectly broken down stuff in 15 days. Oh, it
1: looks pretty good. It's, Does it, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's got, it's still got some larger pieces in it, but it's no longer going to do any harm to your, to your plants. And it's, yeah, it's basically done its first... First round, yeah. And you can, you can use it after that, but it's better if it then sits to mature. I'm getting a picture of your dream garden now. So it's <laughs> filled with
0: love. We can see it from lots of different perspectives, including, you know, from a bug and a bird, but also different time scales, like an oak tree and a mayfly. We've also got beavers and somewhere to go while swimming, a whole lovely ecosystem. And Majestic compost bins (laughs) (laughs) with a fantastic soil food web. What else do you think you cannot manage without in your dream garden?
1: Well, we've talked about the animals that I would like to look at, and so I'd have to create homes for them. So I live in a very old house. I have bees in both my chimneys, and I have carpenter bees in the wood and so on, and Yes, as many animals living in the house as as in the garden. We have been having a a biodiversity audit done and the uh, lovely ecologist Andy Phillips was as interested in the house as he was in the garden. But joking aside, old wood is really important to create habitat for bees and all all different pollinators and beetles and so on. And so I would have lots of those sorts of homes in, in the garden because the other thing we're doing is mapping out the distance between forage and a shelter. So it's great to have all the pollinators, but you also need somewhere for the bees to live. So to be able to have some old wood, some piles of wood, some piles of old aggregates, some piles of sand, all those sorts of things make lovely homes for burrowing bees and burrowing insects. And we have 270 different species of bees in the UK, so the honeybee is only one of them. And whilst I love honeybees and I have wild Honeybee hives as well. Matt Somerville's wonderful bee kind hives. We put those in a lot of our client gardens. Absolutely beautiful. They're sort of like tripod shaped with a a, a little cottage on top. I That's right. You would it's that cottage. Yeah. Yes. The the key about them is that they're made out of a trunk of a tree, so they are warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And the bees, you you can put a super on top to get honey, but I I don't. I just have them for pollination. And to talk to the bees, of course, which is very important. But the the biodiversity hotspots, edges, is sort of liminal spaces, is where all the magic happens. So my dream garden would have some woodland, some woodland edge. And in my own garden at home, I have a lawn spiral, which I'm I'm amused to see and really chuffed. A lot of people have picked up on, and I see lots of people sending me copies of theirs in there, that they've done in their gardens. And it's very simple. It's just a question of, mowing a spiral in your lawn and leaving the rest to grow long. But the difference between the short grass and the long grass and what comes up when you leave grass so the wildflowers as well is extraordinary because it's edge habitat, so much edge habitat and of course 50% less time mowing and much less fossil fuels used to mow and all that increased biodiversity. So I, I would need to have a, a lawn spiral to, is a home and the herb garden. So at the moment oregano oregano or oregano, depending on who's listening, is an amazing hotspot in my garden for pollinators. And all of those kind of uh, herby things at the moment is just huge. All the labiates and all of the asteraceae and, yes... Brilliant for all the pollinators to come and visit. So I'd have lots of those kinds of homes, and really, it's that that sort of mindset. So, what what are you designing for? So sometimes people tell me they don't like yellow, for example, but I have yellow loose strife in my garden, *Lysimachia vulgaris*, which I was never all that keen on as a plant because it's quite quite upright and you know, it's quite stiff, but it does have these rather lovely pink centres. But then I I met the yellow-faced yellow loosestrife b i have to say that quite slowly is a bit of a tongue twister macropus europea and my word once you've seen one of those you're going to love yellow loosestrife because if you could have those in your garden and they're very rare in the uk they like fens and, and wet places so to have those habitat for those and the forage for those is a is a privilege really and similarly, recently, I don't know if you read, but there's a um, certain parasitoid wasp that lays its eggs inside the uh, oak processionary moth. They feed on cow parsley. So get, Great Dixter was getting a bit of a rap for leaving cow parsley over the place. But like, it's like, no, we need cow parsley because then, if you love oaks, then you can love cow parsley. <laughs> so it all, yes, creating those homes. My my garden would be full of homes for things. Lovely. And you mentioned Andy Phillips, I believe he was the ecologist who did the
0: biodiversity audit at Dixter in 2017. That's right, yes. And, uh, and, and biodiversity audit. Now, how would you describe what that is to somebody? It's not like your big bird watch count in a January. It's sort of like a maxed out version of
1: that, isn't it? It's a bit like that. So he comes once a month. I'm not sure exactly how he did the Dixon, one, although I have seen the Dixon one. But for us, he comes once a month and he's concentrating on insects. So we do a baseline audit for our clients, but that might involve doing a birds, bats, snakes, invertebrates, dormouse, all those sorts of things. But with Andy, we're, we're focusing, he's an entomologist, we're focusing on insects. So he comes once a month and he does a sweep of the gardens and he sees what's there and he records all of the species and then he has all these wonderful spreadsheets telling us what is in the garden but also where the hotspots are. So, for example, on the oregano, if you can imagine a bar chart, the bar chart for oregano would be really long because he, he would have seen... Don't know maybe sixty different things on it, and then perhaps on the Rosa Summer Wine, which is a great favourite at the moment. It would be slightly less, but still it's a lovely single rose, so and smells amazing, and repeat flowers. So that's also another thing which would attract lots. And Napita is a huge draw, so that would have a you know fairly long bar chart. So he goes round and um, measures not only what is there but how many are on different plants so we can get a real feel for what are the really good plants. And interesting, what are the slightly less plants? I've fallen a little bit out of love with hydrangeas since we've been doing this because although they're good hunting grounds for insects, you see a lot of insects going past them, I haven't seen a lot of insects apart from a few flies using them for, for nectar and so on. So I, I'm going to investigate that a little bit more because before I don't plant them, I, mean, I would always plant them, but I would make sure I had lots of other plants pollinators around with them.
0: How can you be sure when you're doing a sort of biodiversity audit like that that you are seeing everything that's there? Is it that Andy comes every month or is it
1: that you know where to look? Well it's both. He does come every month, yes, and he does know where to look. So I think I I love collaborating with specialists, so we collaborate with a lot of specialists. You learn so much doing that, so I wouldn't undertake a biodiversity audit myself I send him lots of WhatsApp pictures and I say, Oh my word, is this a Lassia glossum? And you know, which is a little carpenter bee. and he'll he'll come back and say, Yes it is, or he'll say no, and We saw that last week at such a... <laughs> Yes. <laughs>
0: it's exciting. So I know the idea is that you take a baseline audit usually yes. and sort of see what's there. And then as you make changes possibly, then you sort of check in every once in a while and see if it's changed is that right the the level of biodiversity
1: yes and also because he is a specialist he recommends some habitats which we might not have yet so uh, in my own garden i didn't have a south-facing sandbank and he spotted a couple of species that would have liked that sort of space so we've made a south-facing sandbank now so i'm excited to see what comes i keep going out to see if anybody's arrived to, to take up residence so as well as Andy coming to do
0: the biodiversity audit every month, who else would you have in your dream garden? If you could pick some
1: people to share it with, is there anyone that you'd like to um, invite? Well, yes. So I'd love to have a garden full of people. And if it was a, a dead person, then it would be Tichnat Nhat Hanh. So he was an amazing, he was a Buddhist teacher and he was a pacifist and really taught a a lot um, on how to understand the sort of oneness of being. So I would invite him. I I actually wouldn't invite him. I would not presume to invite him. But if he was passing and he needed a bed, I'd be so honored. So that would be incredible. And of living people, it would be Satish Kumar, who I think is also an extraordinary teacher. He founded Resurgence magazine, and he and his wife, June Mitchell, who's an amazing lady, I met them at 42 Acres, and she taught me Qigong, which is something which I love to do now in my garden. So, from there, also the founders of Be the Earth, which is um, Seth Tabatsnik and his wife, Renata Minerbo, who are doing so much good for the world. So, they would all kind of come along, and Ben Goldsmith's just up the road. So, I'd ask him, and Derek Gow, who's the beaver man. So, yes, I think it's nice to invite people. If we were going to have a big party, it would have to be perhaps people who, who knew people who knew each other. And we just built a lovely long table in the woodland in my garden of some fallen poplars. We had it, some fallen poplars and it's a very higgledy-piggledy make-do-men type long table with benches and, and chairs. So that would be where we'd have the party. <laughs> it certainly sounds <laughs> like it would be a party. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it would be wonderful. And I think you also asked about young young gardeners um, and designers who would, who I would get to help in the garden. So I must I must mention some of those people I've been so lucky to work with some brilliant uh, young designers both coming through my studio and also who I've I've met along the way and I'm very close Physically as well as a friendship, to Great Dixter and to Sissinghurst. So as well as, as Troy and Fergus, of course, the younger gardeners who I'd love to collaborate with again are people like Lucy Willen, who's now out in... Spiroza in Greece, yes, Greece yeah, yeah, the Mediterranean one. Society
0: yes. Garden, yeah.
1: um, Isabel Spens or Saffron from from Sissinghurst, and Michael Wachter, Johnny Bruce, Mark O'Neill, all from Dixter. There's so many really cool if i can use that word younger gardeners and there's it's so good at the moment because there's this need there's this need to look after the earth and these people have sort of stepped up and taken up the challenge and i don't know if they've made gardening cool or if gardening's become cool and you know that's why they've come, but either way, we're very, very lucky to have them—the hip kids.
0: I'm yeah. sure they wouldn't see themselves that way, but no. yes, the up-and-comers, the, the, yes. the next generation. Some of them of great already gardeners. come up, yes, but, yeah, but yes. they're younger yes. than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fantastic. And if there was something that you would never have in this dream garden, that you would ban, that you wouldn't allow past the garden gate, what's your bugbear? What's the thing you just you couldn't abide in a garden?
1: Yes, well, for, it's, this is my garden, so I'm pretty tolerant of, of most other people's. But for my dream garden, I wouldn't want any chemicals. And I I have a personal dislike for chemically treated close board fences. I think that they're really unfriendly. And when you go through some beautiful English villages and then you see these tall fences separating neighbours – It just stops the neighborliness because to be able to chat through a hedge or over a low fence, it it creates community. And I think that along with bounty, then community is is so important to to our well-being, really. So if somebody had one of these miserable fences, as I would say, then as actually we did for a client, we, we kept the fence. But, um, and this was really just to put less things on, on a skip. We put rebar up in front of it. So that's reinforced bar, which is quite wide spaced metal bar. And we just grew loads of climbers up it, edible if possible. So everything in my dream garden would be edible from, yes, the, the hedges to the trees to the meadow, a medicinal meadow. So important to have by your garden. So everything from Anchusa to Angelica, all, all those sorts of things. But if you do have a fence, I'd say we we would cover it and then we'd make holes in it. So holes for hedgehogs, holes for the neighbours' children and holes for me to crawl through and see my neighbours as well. (laughs) So you're speaking
0: specifically of that sort of big DIY store overlapping six foot,
1: Yes, fencing. Yes, yes. And you can't see through it, so you you, and it's not good for security because the burglars can hide behind it. So much better to have something that you can see through. And we did a little analysis in the studio of one of those versus a hedge versus a wall. The the fences comes out bottom for biodiversity for carbon before you even get to neighbourliness. I suppose with the wall, there's opportunities possibly. If it's not pointed too well, then at least there's opportunities for some things to live in there. That of the things idea? can live in it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, yes. Yes, rake out some of the mortar and you have all sorts of creatures and moss and lichen and, and yeah, things can... Fit. It's quite hard for even ivy to fix to a chemically treated fence, so... If I had to ban something, chemicals (laughs) and particularly chemical fences. And then if I could
0: push you to pick just three more quickfire things to include
1: in your dream garden, what would they be and why? So I mentioned the medicinal meadow that would be on my mountain and I'd have to have a mountain and as long as as well as my medicinal meadow on my mountain, I'd have a glacier. I love to ski tour. haven't been since before lockdown. But to be up in the wilds is my absolute dream. And in the wilds, I'd have a pair of wolves. I've seen wolf kill ski touring, and it's extraordinary. Nothing is wasted. All you see is red snow because it's cleaned up by all the other creatures, including the huge vultures that take everything else. So the ecosystem, when it works, it works really well.
0: This has sounded like quite a dramatic garden all of a sudden. We've had, you know, bees and bugs and nice plants and some beavers and then a mountain, a glacier and some wolves.
1: Yes, I think that's what we all need.
0: That was Marion Boswell, landscape designer. Thank you for listening to Talking Gardens, brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated magazine. Find us on the newsstand or at gardensillustrated.com and hit follow now to make sure you don't miss an episode.